Today we are starting our series on John and I, I'm really excited about starting John. We've been preparing this for some time. I think it's going to be um, 50 messages altogether and so I hope to be finished in June 2013. You think I'm joking? I am not joking in any shape or form. So, it's good. so Ephesians was 26 but that was only six chapters. So you know, give me a break. 50 is not bad going when you look at the average. So it's going to be about 50 messages that we're going to spend in the book of John. And, and I could just not be more excited about delving into this gospel, John's account. You see, this book really is a book for everyone. Leon Morris says it this way. In Leon Morris's commentary, he says, The gospel of John is like a swimming pool, shallow enough that a child can wade in it, and deep enough that an elephant can swim in it. I think that sums it up really well. The Gospel of John is unique in its ability to create a very wide scene of an audience. And so this Gospel account of John, John the beloved disciple of Jesus, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, is truly wonderfully accessible for all. It's wonderfully accessible to every single individual in this room. See, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, then firstly, just thanks for coming. Thanks for being a part of, of what we're doing. And you have my deepest respect to come out to a church on the premise of you're trying to work out how this works and how Jesus works and trying to figure him out. You have my deepest respect that you're here. And I know there are a number of you here that that is your circumstance. Well, you need to know that this gospel, it, it is for you. It's written with you in mind. You see, if you turn to John chapter 20, John actually gives the game away. This is one way to shorten the series. You just go straight to John 20. He gives the game away in terms of why he's actually writing the book. And you discover it's written with, with you in mind. John chapter 20, verse 30, says this. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why he's written this book. He's written this book as an account, because he wants you to see Jesus for who he really is. He wants to show you that Jesus really is the Messiah, that Jesus really is God. And he wants you in seeing that you may believe and have life in his name. So my hope, just like John's hope, is that as we discuss this gospel together every week, that you keep coming back, and that through coming back and through God ministering his word to you, that you really do encounter the risen Christ. That's John's hope. That's my hope. And this gospel account then is well and truly for you. But it is also without question for believers, which is the majority of us in this room. See, even if you have been a believer for hundreds of years, this gospel account still without question speaks to you. See, John's hope in writing this account is that Jesus would become much bigger in our eyes that we would see as he presents the risen Christ how incredible Jesus is, how compelling he is, how gracious he is, how majestic he is, and he hopes that our response to that will be amazement and appreciation and love which is ever-growing. And the truth is, no matter how long we've been a believer, there's always room to grow in our appreciation and gratitude and love for the Saviour, isn't there? There's always room to, to grow as we grasp him more and understand him more. There's a wonderful scene in the Chronicles of Narnia where Lucy is communicating with Aslan. And she hasn't seen Aslan for quite some time. And she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And she comes back having not seen him. And she's convinced, you've, you've grown. 
And Aslan, in the way only Aslan can, looks her back straight in her eyes and says, Lucy, I'm not bigger. You are. And every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Well, for anybody who's been a Christian a while, you know what C.S. Lewis is getting at there. He's saying, listen, every year as you grow as a child of God, every year that you grow, Christ is going to become bigger. And so the more mature we become, the more the Savior is, is hailed among us. The more mature we become as Christians, the greater the Savior becomes in our eyes. And that's my hope then, that for every individual in this room, we engage with the Gospel of John, a book which without question is like a swimming pool. Shallow enough that a child can wade in it and deep enough that an elephant can swim in it. I pray that we go swimming then and that as we do, Jesus, the true Jesus, becomes bigger in all of our eyes. And so I'm going to pray and then we'll dive into the prologue, which is John 1, verses 1 through 18. Let's pray first. Well, Lord, after much preparation and much provoking by you. What a thrill it is to now open this book up together. Lord, did you minister to our hearts? Would you speak to our souls every single week? Lord, for those that are here that don't know you as Lord and Savior, would you reveal yourself through this account? Would people see you and believe in you? And through believing, would they find life in your name? And Lord, for the rest of us, would you become bigger in our eyes? Week after week, would we not come and posture ourselves as ones that already know this? Would we come and posture ourselves as children looking for the first time? And would you amaze us? Would you amaze us with who you are in your nature, in your grandeur, in your compelling nature? Holy Spirit, minister to our hearts and have your way amongst us in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. You know, when I was a young man, 
particularly when I was 16, 17, 18, I, I really wanted to be a professional drummer. That's all I really wanted to do in my life uh, at that point in time. And I'd played drums since I was about six years old, and so I'd, I'd trained all my life, and it was going quite well. I was, I was 17 years old, and I was, playing, I was playing in a big band, I was playing in a concert band, I was playing in a rock band. We even brought out a CD, but you don't want to hear it because it was absolutely horrendous. Uh, but I was, I was waiting for the tour bus to come around at one time. However, one of the things that I really did enjoy in those days is I used to play in musicals. I used to get paid to, to play in, in theatre, and I loved that. I absolutely loved and playing drums properly in, in theatre. So sometimes I'd play timpani drums, sometimes I'd play drums. And in one occasion, in a musical called Carousel, Roger and Hammerstein's Carousel, I had to play snare drum and glockenspiel. And I loved it. I thoroughly enjoyed doing that. And every night you heard the same play. And it was always mesmerizing. But one of my favorite bits of that production of Carousel is right at the start when the orchestra assemble, the curtain hasn't come back yet, but, but people start looking at you. They all take their seats. The lights go down. And the orchestra start playing through the overture. Now, the overture is always right at the start. Everybody sits down, and the overture starts to play. And what the orchestra do is, through the score of the music, different themes start to come out in the overture that people are going to hear as the audience time and time again as the musical goes on. And so the trumpets start doing a tune that happens to be in song number five. And the violins start doing a tune that that happens to be in song number eight. And so the audience start to get introduced to the grand themes of the whole musical through this piece called the Overture. Well, that is exactly what John is doing here in verses 1 through 18. This is a prologue. If this was a musical, then this would be the Overture. See, right here in these first 18 verses, John is introducing us to words that we are going to hear over and over and over again. Words like logos, the word. Words like light and life, truth, grace, witness. Rejection, belief. All these are words that we're going to hear all the way through the whole Gospel of John. And so there's going to be different times when we're going to be like, oh, there it is again, there it is again. That's what it's like because he's deliberately introducing us to certain words. But more than anything, he's introducing us to three very specific themes that are going to run through the whole book of John, the whole account. They're the themes of deity, they're the themes of incarnation, and the theme of salvation. In these 18 verses then, as the audience assemble and the lights dim, John starts communicating these grand themes of the rest of the book. And so let's look at them in order, which is all we want to do today. I just want to introduce you exactly like the way John is to this whole gospel. And here's the first theme then that we're going to hear much about in this gospel, and it's deity, the deity of Jesus Christ. See, the truth, the statement that Jesus Christ is deity, that Jesus Christ is God, is a massively bold one. That's a, that's a huge statement. And I think as Christians we get used to it in terms of, yeah, well, you know, we, we know it, Jesus Christ is God. Yeah, but, but, but hang on a minute, that, that is massive. You see, if Jesus Christ is just a man, if he's just a dude, we can take him or leave him, right? Might want to respond to him, might not. He's just a guy, he's just like me. But if Jesus Christ is God, then that changes everything. If Jesus Christ really is God, then he's worthy of our attention. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our entire lives because because this is God. This is the one who who made us. This is the one who now is walking around in flesh, but this is him 
who actually made us. And in the opening three verses of the Gospel of John, that is exactly what John is claiming. He is claiming very specifically that Jesus is God. You see, the Gospel of John starts very differently to the other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels. If you were to look at Mark's Gospel, it begins with the ministry of, of, of John the Baptist. And so by that time, Jesus is already 30 years old. And it's just, no, no, John the Baptist is here. And then we get in touch with Jesus. He's just about to start his earthly ministry. If you look instead at Matthew and Luke, they start with the birth of Jesus. And we see, see, we the, see the angel turning up to Mary. And, we, and then we see the birth of Jesus. And, and that's really how those Gospels start. But not so with John. John takes us back to the beginning and then beyond. Let's read it in verses 1, 2, and 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was. See, right up front, John wants to help us see that Jesus, which he goes on to say in verse 14, Jesus is the Word, that Jesus is the pre-existing eternal one. He was there in the beginning. And he was there in the beginning because he was there before the beginning. He was the pre-existing eternal God. Before anything was made, Jesus was there. So in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was Jesus. Well, what was he doing? Oh, he was creating. What? Yeah, that's right. The preeminent eternal God, Jesus Christ, was doing the creating. God has ordained it, but all things were created through Jesus. He was the one that exhaled the stars. He was the one that exhaled the galaxies and brought things into being. For all things, as it says right here, were made through him, and without him was not anything made. Right up front, he's saying Jesus was the eternal pre-existing one. And the word was with God. Two persons. One in essence, but two distinct persons. Later on, we're going to meet the Holy Spirit, and that's where the Trinity concept comes from. So in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus, the Word, was God. That is a staggering statement. And yet right here, as he begins the Gospel, that is the claim on our lives and the claim he is making within the context of Scripture. In an absolute genius stroke then, John uses the word logos. That's the Greek word that we now translate word. And he uses that very clearly and distinctly because it would be very, very familiar to the original hearers. Both Jews and Greeks would understand what John is saying when he says Logos. In the beginning was the Logos. See, the rest of us now, 2,000 years on, go, I don't get it. In the beginning was the Logos? But back then, they understood it completely. See, to the original audience of Jews and Greeks, this phrase, the Logos, was a term they were very familiar with. You see, to a Jew, as John says in the beginning was the Logos, they would immediately understand what John was saying. Because all the way through the Old Testament to a Jew, the word Logos means God's active self-revelation. And so if you said to a Jew in the beginning was the Logos, they understood that, that that was God's active self-revelation. That there was something in God all the way through the Old Testament that he turns up, he speaks, and when he speaks, action happens. Things take place. So in the beginning, God was there creating things. He turns up, he speaks, and things take place. The Jew understood that, and they understood that within God's active presence, 
when he turned up and he spoke, things would happen, and in happening, he would reveal something about himself. He would reveal something of his nature. And so the word logos to a Jew in God's self-revelation, active self-revelation, was action, and he was revealing who he was. And so they got it. They understood, okay, in the beginning it was the word. All right. But so did the Greeks. They understood it too. See, in the 6th century BC, Ephesus was home to a guy, to, a guy called Heraclitus. Heraclitus was a famous philosopher. He was a Greek philosopher. He lived in Ephesus and he came up with some pretty wild stuff and pretty crazy stuff that got very, very popular. So he was the guy that said, you know what, you can never set foot in a river twice. That's, he came up with that. And his whole premise was, well, if you put your foot in and then you bring it back out again, by the time you put it back in, the river's moved on. and So it's different. It's a different river that you're now putting it in. And so this became a really common Greek philosophy of the time. They understood that this is the way it worked. And so Greeks would sit around with Heraclitus and say, listen, how does the world then not end up just in chaos? If there's just this randomness about life and you can never step in a river twice, well, everything could just be chaos then. What's to stop the world of randomness just becoming absolutely chaos? And he described, you know what, the world cannot become chaos because there is a great mind in the sky. There's a source of life. There is, in some way, a life-giving force. One who must order our randomness so that this doesn't go into complete chaos. And so this term for the source of life, you know what they called it? Logos. And so both the Jews and the Greeks, right up front, were interacting in a very familiar way with what John is saying right here. They both had concepts of what he is talking about. So he deliberately engages them with a very familiar term. In the beginning was the Logos. But then comes something very unfamiliar. And the Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. He engages them with the familiar. And then helps them see. (laughs) You know this this idea of God's self-revelation to you Jews? And this idea of the source of life to you Greeks, that's Jesus. Jesus was that self-revelation. Jesus is the author of life. Jesus is the source of life. And in so doing, he brings them in through the familiar and introduces them and indeed now us 2,000 years on to a grand concept of Jesus being God. And one of the neat things about John then is he doesn't expect us just to lap it off on, uh, on blind faith. He doesn't just say, well, look, I've, I've told you, so get over it. He doesn't do that. He now spends 20 chapters seeking to prove that to us. He's saying, listen, Jesus was God. I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to show you. And so he begins to show us in this gospel just some incredible things about Jesus truly being deity. He doesn't want us to do blind faith. He wants us to put our faith in objective evidence that Jesus really is God. And so he points us at different points in this account to the Old Testament, sometimes directly, quoting Old Testament prophecies, sometimes indirectly, just using very carefully chosen words that the Jew or the Greek would know, oh, this refers refers to that. And he's saying "This this is God, that Jesus is God by making that inference. He does it lots. John also points us to a lot of miracles, not just random miracles. You see, you read some of the other books like Mark and Matthew, and you just think, where have they got these miracles from? It tells a story, and it's great, but they seem quite random. Not so with John. 
He has chosen very carefully certain miracles and he has chosen these carefully because he wants to prove to us that Jesus is the word who really created everything in the first place. And so every miracle is a creation miracle. He's proving to us time and time again that this is God. This is the creator of all. And so in John chapter 2, we see water into wine. Jesus creating wine from water. John chapter 6, we see the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus creating food out of just a couple of pieces of morsels. John 9, we see him healing a man born blind. Why is it significant that he was born blind? It's massively significant. Because Jesus needed to create sight for him. Only God can do that. Only God can create something where there is nothing. And then later on in the same chapter, John chapter 9, he starts talking to us about Lazarus. Lazarus is dead, but Jesus brings him back to life. He creates life where there is only death. So John tours us around very specific miracles, proving to us time and time again, Jesus is the author of life. He's the one that breathes forth life. He's the one that did it in the beginning. He's the one that is still doing it to this day. And all the time through John's account then, he he brings us back to Jesus' character. And this is very distinct from the other Gospels. You see, what we'll discover with John is John is is more bothered about plot than story. And it's a recurring theme. You see, Mark tells the story of Jesus, and it's compelling, and it's amazing. But John doesn't just want us to hear the story. He wants us to hear the plot. So if I was to say to you, the man killed his wife, That's a story. You know the facts. If I was to say the man killed his wife because he was so grieving, that's the plot. I've just told you why. And that's what John does all the time. He gives us the facts, but then he pulls us behind the scenes all the time because he wants us to see plot. He wants us to see why Jesus was doing these different things, who Jesus really is, how Jesus felt about things, how everybody felt around him. Because he wants to introduce us to Jesus. The one, as he says here in these verses, is full of grace and truth. He wants to help us see that Jesus, his beloved friend, is not just a nice guy who happens to be quite good at grace and quite good at truth, but that Jesus was so incredible in his majesty and his purity, he is the one that was always promised. He is the steadfast love of the Father. He is the faithfulness. He is, without question, the personal revelation of God the Father. Because Jesus is is God. And so he pulls us behind the scenes several times, not only in the miracles, but just of the character of Jesus, all the time seeking to prove to us that Jesus is deity. Jesus is God. And so that's the first theme, deity. Then comes the theme of incarnation, something else that will recur all the way through the book. Incarnation, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now, For some of you, which I would be thinking it as well, you may be thinking, you know what, deity, Jesus being deity and incarnation, well, that's the same thing. So why is it a separate theme? Well, it's a separate theme because although it is the same coin, it's definitely two different sides of the same coin. There are two distinct parts of knowing that Jesus is deity and that God actually took on flesh and became man. And accordingly, John, even in this opening chapter, in these first 18 verses, introduces us to this, this theme separately. He says this in verse 14. He says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, that whole premise that he's talking about there, 
is literally the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. See, for those of you that are Greek scholars, the word dwelt among us in the Greek means skeinao. That whole premise, and that, what that literally means is pitched his tent. And John is very deliberately using that word skeinao because he's trying to help him see that, listen, in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, God, God asked the people of Israel to build him a tabernacle. And in the middle of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies. And in the middle of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant where his Shekinah glory would dwell. God wanted them to see that he would dwell with his people in that tent. And he instructed then Moses to put all the tribes around that tent. So the tabernacle would be in the middle. God significantly dwelling in the center of his people. And all the tribes of Israel then would all pitch their tents around the tabernacle. What John's saying is that in Jesus Christ... God has pitched his tent among them. He's made a tabernacle in his body. God is now literally having taken on flesh, dwelling with his people. He's walking around with eyes and ears and and feet and hands, walking amongst all his people. God in all grace has become man. You know, that is a staggering thought. See, just this week I was thinking about it and, and I was thinking about it for myself, this whole premise of incarnation and how familiar I can become with that, partly because of Christmas. See, at Christmas, I don't know about you, but at Christmas the incarnation just gets lost in a lot of other really good stuff as well. And so you have your holidays and you have your traditions and you watch Miracle on 34th Street and you're all excited because, it, because it's Christmas and let's get the tree in. This is pretty exciting, but a present, let's talk about presents. And then you come to the carol service and think, yeah, it is amazing that Jesus was born into the squalor of a barred stable and yet yeah, that is amazing, wonderful. Right, who's coming back for some drinks because it's Christmas? And it gets lost somehow in the middle of that. But I've so appreciated this week thinking about the incarnation again in February. (laughs) Because I am bothered about Christmas this week. All I've got this week is the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God becoming man. And when you stop and think of that outside of Christmas, that's amazing. The fact that God, who was there in the beginning and was the Word and was with the Word and was God, then became flesh that's a staggering statement Mike Cain in his book Real Life Jesus says it this way he says the word was not just God from the beginning watching as it were it was through him that God made the whole universe so when John says that Jesus is the word who became flesh he is claiming that before Jesus was born as a baby he was in fact something else he was the eternal word of God Eternally with God and eternally God. But then there came a moment in time during the reign of Caesar Augustus when the one who made the stars became a tiny dividing cell in the womb of an unmarried Jewish girl and was born on a stable floor in a small village just outside of Jerusalem. The word became flesh. And if you had therefore been one of the shepherds looking at this baby that night, you would have been looking into the very face of God. That's amazing. The fact that God, the one who spins the galaxies, would become a, as he says there, a tiny dividing cell in the womb of an unmarried Jewish girl. 
That's astounding truth. And to look at it outside of Christmas, I think, is to be completely overwhelmed. The one who breathed out the sun would, would experience one day what it is like to be too hot under its midday heat. The one who numbers the grains of sand on the seashore and in the desert of every continent, having crafted each individual one, would then know what it is like to wash that sand off his feet at the end of a long day. The one who knitted us together in our mother's womb. The one who crafts and makes lungs and eyes and ears and mouths and hands and feet would know what it is like to divide in his cells and then be born through the birth canal of a teenager and then grow as a baby, as a child, as a teenager and then become a man and know what it is to grow in human flesh. It's staggering, isn't it? And I pray then that as John really exhales this theme to us, that the incarnation would become far bigger in our eyes. The staggering truth of Jesus becoming man, would it affect our hearts as we consider the majesty and splendor of God seen in, in a man, in a guy, a guy we would have walked past on the street, and yet a guy that if we'd stopped and looked, We'd never know it, but it was God, the creator of heaven and earth, walking around as a man. See, I don't know whether you've ever seen Meet Joe Black, but it's one of my favorite films, along with the other 154. I, I love the film Meet Joe Black. It, it's a film where death actually takes on flesh. It's really cool. This guy dies, and, and death, the grim reaper, actually takes on his body because he wants to experience life for a little bit. He wants to get a flavor of, of what it would be like for a while. Well, sometimes we can think of the incarnation a little bit like that. Maybe God just wanted to have a little bit of a check it out, see what he's done. But the incarnation was far greater than that. The incarnation was God, Jesus Christ, coming on a rescue mission. And that introduces us to John's third theme, third theme nearly, namely salvation. The salvation of Jesus Christ. See, the incarnation wasn't purposeless. The incarnation had great purpose, and that purpose was grand rescue. So just a few weeks ago, I was reading the Sydney Morning Herald, as I have want, and I was caught by a certain title, and it just said, Race Against Time to Save Stranded Whales. And there was pictures with it of, of whales that were just stranded on this beach. And so I continued to, to read down and see what was going on, and, and the report began to just discuss how a rescue attempt was underway that for over 100 pilot whales. For over 100 pilot whales who got themselves caught on farewell spit on the northwest tip of the New Zealand South Island. And so there was a rescue attempt just to try and get these whales back in the ocean. And for me, it, it just caught my attention because the scene was so unnatural and so grieving. See, I'm not a massive animal lover, but there was something grand about these whales Whales are such majestic creatures, so, so huge, so, so beautiful in, the, in their power and in their splendor. But the shot was so grieving because these whales, instead of enjoying the ocean that they were made for, instead of swimming in the grandness of what God has created them for, namely the ocean, they're just stranded on a beach. One rescuer said that 
One of the things that upset him is he kept hearing the sound. Kept hearing them, them call to one another as they realized they, they couldn't get back and they were in a strange place. Their concern was that because the whales are so big and because they're made for the ocean, that their body weight would, would basically suffocate themselves as they crushed their own lungs. And so they would try and, try and hold the whales in different angles so that that wouldn't actually take place. And one rescue was talking about how now and again they would just start flapping their tail and moving their fins as they just tried desperately to try and get back to the ocean that they were made for. And yet the scene as you looked at it was these grand whales having been made for the ocean instead stranded on a beach, unable to get back for themselves. Unless they were rescued, there was simply no way back for that which which we were made for. Well, in the Gospel of John, we realize just how like those whales we are. See, in the Gospel of John, we realize that we are made for something more. God made us to swim in the oceans of his love. God made us to be with him, to enjoy him, to be amazed by his grace and to find our identity and our purpose in perfect worship and unity with him. God made us to be with him. And yet in our sin, we stranded ourselves as we pursued the beach. We exchanged the creator for the created. And we stranded ourselves. And the truth is, as we spend time in this world then, we can often know that we're lost. We can often know that we're made for something different, but we cannot figure how to get there. And so we call out now and again. And now and again we desperately try to to flap ourselves back by doing charity work or by doing some type of ritual that maybe will help us get back to that which we know we're made for. But we can't get there. And yet in the Gospel of John, we're introduced to the greatest rescuer, rescuer you have ever seen in your entire life. And his name is Jesus Christ. You see, folks, you were made for something more. You were made for the grand ocean of God's presence. And yet in your sin and in my sin, we stranded ourselves on the beach of wrath. We simply cannot get back by ourselves. However much we try, we cannot get back. But Jesus Christ, knowing that we couldn't get back, took on flesh. The one who breathed forth the stars took on flesh, lived a perfect life, and then died on the cross. And in doing so, made it clear that I have come to rescue you. Come to make a way for you to go back to that which you were made for. I've came to make a way back so that you, having been created by God, can return to him and find your identity. I've come to make a way for you, who you know that you are lost, to find that which you were made for. For ultimately that salvation would come at the incredible cost of his own life. And yet that rescue mission is the great theme of the Gospel of John. God, deity, taking on flesh and coming after a lost world to save them. We see the theme here in verse 9. It says this, The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. We're going to see that time and time again. As his own people reject him. And yet, verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
he gave the right to become children of God. In and of ourselves, we've squandered the right to become children of God. We can't. We're stranded just like those whales. But through belief in Jesus Christ, he gives the right for that individual to become children of God and be brought back to that which they were made for. And that, my friends, is the glory of the gospel and the third theme then that we are going to see all the way through the gospel of John. The gospel of John is like a swimming pool, shallow enough that a child may wade in it and deep enough that an elephant can swim in it. The gospel is all about Jesus, deity, incarnation, salvation. So I want to encourage you, let us come every week then ready to to swim in this gospel. Let us come ready to throw ourselves in, to, to grasp hold of an amazement of who Jesus is. And as a fruit, my prayer, and I think the prayer of John, is that we would finish this series and be like Thomas. You see, so many people think of Thomas as doubting Thomas. That's not the point of John. The point of John is that doubting Thomas is believing Thomas. See, right at the end of this book, there's this wonderful story of Thomas. You, you barely hear about Thomas all the way through the book. You hear him called at the start and then it all goes a bit quiet. We presume he's there, but he only gets introduced to us right at the end. Jesus has risen again. He's come back to the earth. He's spending time with his disciples, but one disciple is missing, and that's Thomas. Thomas, unfortunately, wasn't there. He missed it. It's the story of my life. I missed the big event. I cannot believe it. That's exactly what happened to Thomas. And they say, Thomas, you are not going to believe this. But Jesus has risen again, and he came to see us. He came to be with us. Thomas cannot believe it. That's exactly what happened. He's like, you are kidding me. I can't believe it. I, I am not going to believe. Until I see him, until I put my hands in his hand, until I put my hands in his side and see these scars, I, I, I'm not going to believe. At that point, Jesus, the risen Savior, comes up behind Thomas. Thomas turns, and he just says, my Lord and my God. That's John's desire all the way through the book, that that would be our response. If we're here and we don't know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, then John's heart and my heart is that as we go through this, you would come to know him as Lord and Savior and that your response then would be, Jesus, you're my Lord and my God. And that for all the rest of us, as we consider the greatness of Jesus, that our Lord and our God and our Savior would become bigger and bigger and bigger in our eyes. That we would be freshly amazed at who he is, freshly in awe, freshly in amazement as we consider who he is. That is John's hope and that's my hope. So let's come ready to swim, amen? And as we do, would Jesus become bigger in our eyes? Let's pray. Well, Lord, I, I am hungry that we delve more into this gospel and I'm, I'm saddened that we have to wait another week. But Lord, thank you today for already opening our eyes to where you are leading us and where you are taking us. Lord, as we see these themes, would we be like Lucy and Aslan? As we grow, would you become bigger and bigger in our eyes? Would you... Would we be freshly amazed in a year from now? Would you be bigger in our eyes a year from now than you are today? Lord, we want to love you more. We want to be amazed with you more. We want to be more 
staggered at who you are. Lord, as we look at the book of John, would our eyes not primarily be on ourselves, would our eyes be on you? And would all glory go to you then as you affect and minister to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.